Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Um, I think it was a year ago almost that I was here last and talking on intersubjectivity. So there's a few faces that are familiar. Um, it's nice to see you, Dexter, from school, and a few folks that I've worked with with the Hamilton House um, a few months ago. So, And it's also very nice to have an opportunity to just share with all of you my experiences in Bhutan because Bhutan is such an amazing Buddhist country and so little is known about Bhutan that I was very happy to have a chance to connect with Clint and be able to come and present my experience in Bhutan and then also field questions. So what I'll do is I will talk for, I guess, 20 to 30 minutes, hopefully, and then have questions and answering after that. But while I'm presenting, please feel free to um, raise your hand or ask a question for clarification so that it's just very informal and, you know, I'm not inclined to just speak for a half hour and then have questions. Like, to the extent that we can mix it um, is is great. Um, So I'll say a few things about why Bhutan, how I got there, what I did there, and then after presenting that, then I'll talk about Buddhism in Bhutan and then be done and then enter questions and answer. I had spent like seven, I lived in Africa for three years and after that I went to Asia on a pilgrimage to explore the domain of consciousness in the Eastern traditions and kind of see what was going on over there kind of firsthand. And while I was there I traveled in India, Nepal, Thailand, Indonesia I ended up taking refuge in the Three Jewels in Dharamsala um, after a number of meditation retreats and kind of study and exploration with fellow Dharma students. And it was during that pilgrimage that I first heard about Bhutan. And what I had heard was very little, but the two things stood out in my mind. One was that it's a beautifully amazing place. And two that it's very expensive and and it costs $250 a day for the visa. So as a budget traveler, it was a bit out of my reach. Um, And I'll say a little bit in a moment about why it's so expensive. So that was really all I'd ever heard about Bhutan. And when I got to California Institute of Integral Studies and began my work in the MA program there, I had kind of made a commitment to myself that at some point during my graduate education I would return overseas and live for an extended period of time and try and connect that to my studies, feeling that my time overseas has been very valuable 
and to the extent that I can incorporate that into my own education, you know, the better for me. Because as a global citizen, I've just found that it's important the more contact I can have with other cultures and other traditions. So I had finished my master's, and, and then that's when I went to Bhutan just recently, kind of at the halfway mark between the master's and the PhD. What drew my attention to Bhutan was my interest in environmental philosophy and trying to... My dissertation topic is exploring the various approaches to the environment and how to bridge them in a way that gives kind of a fuller understanding of our environmental embeddedness. Because I find that various approaches to the environment either focus on the subjective dimensions of our reality, such as deep ecology, kind of focusing on the expanded self and a wider identification, or our intersubjective dimension of our reality. For example, ecofeminism often focuses on environmental justice or relationality between humans, um, class divisions, sex divisions, gender divisions, and how we need to address some of the issues there as well as addressing our, the issues between how we relate to nature. And then you have a lot of approaches that focus on the objective dimensions of nature in our environmental situation. And this would be more just kind of the basic environmental sciences, um, systems theory, and so forth. So you find that there's these three kind of broad camps in the environmental movement focusing on subjectivity, intersubjectivity, and objectivity. And my interest is in finding a way to kind of integrate those three approaches into a, a more comprehensive framework, and I draw on the work of Ken Wilber to help me in that. As I was trying to find a place to go study overseas that would serve as a container for exploring these issues, Bhutan kept kind of popping up. Um, one, I, I study Tibetan, classical Tibetan at CIIS, and I take a lot of classes there on you know, Himalayan Buddhist studies and so forth. And so I started hearing more and more about Bhutan, and then I did some research on it. And there was this brief introduction to Bhutan in this one book that was explaining that Bhutan has what's called a gross national happiness index in contrast to gross national product. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting and, and curious. Um, and then, there was, then it went on to talk about what Bhutan has named the middle path in terms of their approach to development, uh, economic development and their, their country's development. And the middle path for them, you know, clearly drawing on the Buddhist tradition and its metaphors, is going between the extremes of environmental um, sustainability and cultural preservation. And they go between that extremes within the context of spirituality. So all of a sudden, I could see it. You have environmental sustainability, that's the objective piece. You have cultural preservation, that's the intersubjective dimension. And you're doing that in the context of spirituality in the Tibetan tradition, and that's spirituality or the subjective dimension. So I was starting to see that maybe Bhutan might be a place that was exploring the intersection of these three large domains. And sure enough, as I dove deeper and deeper into um, Bhutan, I really got the sense that they were kind of cutting edge in what they are doing um, with regards to 
preserving the environment, trying to maintain their cultural integrity in the face of modernization and urbanization. And I decided, well, I want to go. And it's very difficult to get in there because they don't allow volunteers. They charge $250 a day as a way of keeping out foreigners so that they don't end up like Nepal, which is in a lot of ways just been ran over by either Dharma bums or trekkers. Um, so they kind of came, when they came into the international community um, in the 60s, they were looking at India and Nepal and kind of seeing what was happening there. And they said to themselves, uh, let's, let's try and create some policies to prevent that or at least, you know, have a little more control around that. And curiously, as a result of that policy, the individuals who come to Bhutan are usually really rich, very white, you know, well-to-do, and, and very old, you know. And so, and there's a, to an extent, those individuals, the ones that I encountered while I was there, didn't seem to always embody the values that Bhutan as a nation tries to embody. So there was a bit of a disconnect between those who could afford to come to Bhutan and the kinds of values that they brought with them. And so I eventually was able to arrange going to Bhutan by networking and connecting with a number of people and eventually making relations with World Wildlife Fund. And I struck a deal with World Wildlife Fund such that I would give three days of my week to work on any project that they wanted in exchange for them waiving my visa fee and allowing me to do more or less what I wanted the other four days of the week. Um, and I explained to them that, that I was a graduate student and that I wanted to do research in Bhutan on what I call integral ecology. And they said, that sounds good to us, so we'll love to have you come. And before I knew it, I was getting on a plane uh, August 31st and headed to Bhutan. And it took four days to get there. Um, it was a horrible, horrible plane experience of just lots of, you know, layovers and, you know, sitting in the Bangkok airport for 36 hours. And because the plane, I got the wrong schedule and they switched it. And so my plane wasn't leaving for the next day. And just a lot of, you know, kind of logistical things that became frustrating. But I finally got there and I went and met with World Wildlife Fund and they decided to have me work with the National Biodiversity Center for my duration. And the project that the National Biodiversity Center was doing is called BBIS, which stands for Bhutan's Integrated Biodiversity Information System. Now, Bhutan is known as one of the top 10 biodiverse spots in the world. It's just breaming with a variety of diversity because it has... It goes from like 700 feet above sea level to, you know, like 16,000 feet above sea level. So there's such an extensive range of ecological zones that there's just a thriving diversity of, you know, wildlife and plants and so forth. But Bhutan doesn't know very much about its biodiversity. They just know they have a whole hell of a lot of it. Um, and what they do know is locked into various databases in various offices and various data sets. So it's essentially islands of information that are incompatible with one another. So the job that I had was helping to prepare a project proposal that will begin to integrate those various islands of information into one web-based system. 
and I could say a lot about it, but I will just stop there because I think there's a lot of more exciting things to talk about. Um, so my average day was getting up at you know like seven, meditating for a little bit, going walking down to my place of work, which was very close to where I lived, working you know for eight hours. Work there is very laid back. In fact, I was often told to not work so hard because I was going to cause problems in the office culture um, and you know just by having this Protestant work ethic where you're just like totally like just cranking out things on the computer and you know doing all these organizational tasks with various documents and you just feel like it's you know an average work style and yet there it's it's so laid back that that looks a little odd to them um, and then after work I would go home and, or sometimes into town. I lived about 45 minutes away from the capital city. And at home, I would just read or work on papers that I was doing for school and research and so forth. And then on the weekend, which I had a four-day weekend, I would travel into the other parts of Bhutan, go to various festivals, um, visit temples and so forth, and participate in various parts of kind of the Buddhist culture, hang out with local <laughs> friends and so forth, and that was kind of my life, day in and day out. And so I'll stop there with kind of the personal dimension of my experience in Bhutan and, and transition into talking a little bit about the Buddhism in Bhutan. <coughs> Bhutan is a very small country, and maybe I should have said a few of these details before I started. But Bhutan is located next to Nepal, um, right below Tibet, and right above India. In fact, India has that kind of bizarre little arm that extends out and it kind of cradles Bhutan. And then you have Tibet and then Nepal and then Bangladesh. Um, Bhutan is about half the size of Nepal to kind of give you a visual. And it is full of very steep valleys and mountain ranges. And it wasn't until like 1906, that Bhutan actually became unified under a king. Up until that point, it had been a bunch of like kind of warring um, valleys with different kind of warlords, and the valleys are so steep that there just was, you know, no real capacity at that point to unite them in any real way, and you know there were no roads and so forth. And then in you know the early 1900s a king came into power that unified them, and they've had four kings so far. And each of the kings has been very much what I would call an enlightened ruler. And it's really an example of how when you have a monarchy and that monarch is um, deeply compassionate and deeply wise, how beneficial that can be for the entire country. Um, and there are ways in which I would look at our democratic you know, republic, and see all the problems that we have in the democratic, you know, attempt at organizing our country. And now here you have one guy who's in charge of everything, which seems very dangerous in a certain sense. But yet in Bhutan, it's it works so well because the kings have been so concerned about the people. They've done amazing things with ta tax reform. Um, the king continually relinquishes his power to the people and is, in a sense, trying to prepare the country to get rid of the king. And the people find this absurd because they love the king so much. And to give a few examples, 
like 10 years ago, the king institutionalized what was called a vote of no confidence, where every few years the um, assembly has to vote whether they have confidence in the king or not. And if there is a, you know, over a 50% majority that says no confidence, then the king's out and they have to elect a new leader. Well, the first few times they did this, everyone voted confidence because they all love the king so much. So the rumor has it that he, at one point, stuffed the ballot box with a few no confidences just to kind of let people know that it's okay to say no confidence. And while I was there, he met with the assembly and has asked them to begin drafting a constitution. So there's just a lot of things he's doing that are really impressive. And I had the chance to meet him the day after September 11th when he invited all of the Americans in his country, which was only about eight of us, to gather at a ceremony in the uh, what's called the Zong. And Clint, did you read that letter here? Did you or send it out to some people? Part of it was in the newsletter. Okay. Oh, great. So maybe some of you are familiar um, with that, but just to um, recap it a little bit, you know, if obviously being an American overseas when that happened was pretty, you know, overwhelming. And the king declared a national holiday, asked that nobody work that day, and then invited the 80 Americans to the Zong, which is a amazing fortress-like building that houses both the monk body and the civil, you know, dimension of the government. And there was about 50 monks chanting prayers of peace for about an hour. There were a thousand butter lamps that the Americans lit together with His Majesty and the three queen, four queens. And, and then after lighting the thousand butter lamps, we just sat and, and bore witness to, you know, the 50 monks chanting peace. Um, mantras of peace and it was very moving and it was such a beautiful ceremony and one of the things that was so nice about it is the king of Bhutan doesn't have any official relations with America and so it wasn't coming out of a diplomatic space of you know oh this would be a nice thing to do blah 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 it would just it really just arose out of his own deep concern for our situation as Americans but also just our global reality and how things are very dynamic and difficult in a lot of ways. And there was one gentleman sitting next to me and then on the other side of him was His Majesty. And during the ceremony, I was practicing Tonglen and doing my little mantra myself and breathing in the black smoke of suffering associated with the event and exhaling white light um, for all those involved. And, you know, I had some tears coming down my eyes and I was, you know, chanting Sanjay Cho Dong Zhen Dun La Kyop Su Chio, which is just a way of saying I go to refuge in the three jewels. Um, and then connecting that with just the process of really trying to open up to the magnitude of the situation. And the king, he came and he shook my hand and he looked at me in such a profound way and he said, are you Buddhist? And I looked at him kind of like, wow, like the king's like talking to me. Because you know, like, the Bhutanese are such that most of them never meet the king and they're always talking about how much they would love to meet the king. And, and so I just felt so honored and privileged to have that moment of connecting with him. And I looked at him and just said, yeah, I am. 
and and he just nodded his head in kind of a very um, stoic way, like he just is a very solid, handsome man that really kind of exudes a, just a profound embodiment. And so, Buddhism, oh, Bhutan is the only nation in the world that has Vajrayana as its national religion, and Vajrayana being the tantric form of um, Buddhism. And it's very much Tibetan Buddhism that takes place there, though the Bhutanese will tell you that it's Bhutanese Buddhism. Um, but historically um, and culturally, it's very much tied to the Tibetan tradition and is in many ways indistinguishable from it. And it's got a population of only around probably 700,000 people in Bhutan. So it's a very low population density but it's growing very quickly. It has the highest population um, increase rate in Asia, I think like at 3%. Um, so they're dealing with a lot of issues as the population's booming, as people moving into the larger cities, as the traditional Bhutanese and, and Buddhist culture is having to integrate modernization in ways that previously it hasn't had to attempt to do. And... And despite that, you really get a sense of it as a lived Buddhist culture, um, much more so than is available in Tibet for obvious reasons, much more so than I think you even get in Dharamsala or in various parts of Nepal where there's Tibetan communities there. Um, you know, I haven't, and, and Thailand obviously does have a, a very thriving Buddhist community, but it's modernized so much that it's a very different kind of feel than you get in Bhutan. And I think the same with Japan and, and other places. So there's a way in which Bhutan really feels as if <coughs> it's, you're sitting in this place in the like 14th or 15th century. You know, if you're not in the capital city, like if you're out in the rural areas, there's nothing to really indicate that it's anything but, you know, the 14th century. And people are engaging in a Buddhist practice that has incorporated the local shamanistic traditions. And Guru Rinpoche, who is the patron saint of Bhutan, also known as Padmasabhava, he came in the 8th century and converted the many valleys that are now known as Bhutan into Buddhism. And... He basically went from valley to valley and encountered the local deities, um, the nature spirits, and one by one converted them to protectors of the Dharma. And so you have this very rich Buddhist tradition that has, unlike the Christian tradition and its persecution of the pagan um, you know, practices and traditions that it encountered, the... Tibetan Buddhist tradition just kind of opened its arms to the pagan elements that were around it and just said, hey, there's room for all of it, you know, and let's celebrate divinity, let's celebrate the Dharma, let's celebrate God and our own Buddha nature by honoring all these various manifestations. And so in local communities, you have shamans who serve as the bridge to the world of nature spirits and various kind of deities um, you have the monk body and their various roles in kind of communal life. And it, it's, I guess I just continually 
was amazed at just the way in which Buddhism just felt so embodied in so many aspects of life, you know, from meals that were eaten to the way commerce was done to the way people interacted on the streets. And having traveled in probably over 20 countries and lived in a number of those for, you know, good chunks of time, I've encountered lots of different people in a lot of cultures, and the Bhutanese were the warmest, the most open, the, the friendliest individuals that I've ever, ever met anywhere, um, with the Irish being a close second. Um, <laughs> like, they were just so lovely, and they just had deep smiles, and there was just such an open heart space. Like I would be walking just along a street, and someone would pull over and say, hey, do you need a ride? You know, and there were just so many acts of kindness in a sense that continually blew me away. It was just like, why are these people so nice? Like, why are they so happy? And, you know, coming from a culture where, like, on BART, for example, you know, you very rarely talk to anyone and we're just kind of insulated in various ways to a place that not only had a deep community dimension to it, but where they really reached out. They really were curious. And they were very, like, smart and intellectual in a lot of ways and knew a lot about what was going on in the global community. And so I was often, you know, would catch myself with certain stereotypes of, like, oh, these are nice, wonderful people, but, you know, they, they don't know a lot about kind of all the things I know about. And yet I was continually reminded that, no, like, these people are, are so on the ball and are so curious and so interested so that whenever they encounter foreigners or people who they recognize as not necessarily belonging to their community, they really engage those individuals. And as a result, the community has built up quite a large you know, knowledge base of, of difference, of, of other countries, of you know, how their country exists in relationship to other countries. So it was very refreshing, yes. So there are no American corporations or media there? Yeah, no, there's not. Um, Bhutan has done a lot to keep that out. In fact, the only multinational that I saw there was a Benetton shop. <laughs> and the story behind the Benetton shop is a woman went to New York, a Bhutanese woman, to study, and she fell in love with Benetton and just <laughs> thought it was an amazing line of clothes. <laughs> And when she was returning to Bhutan, she decided she wanted to open a Benetton shop in Timpu, the capital city. So she made connections with Benetton reps and so forth, and then opened a Benetton shop. And, but other than that, there's, there's no, the private sector is very small, and there's no, other than products like Coca-Cola and so forth, there's no real corporate presence um, in Bhutan. But it's quickly shifting. Are they politically aligned with India? Yes. When when China took over Tibet, Bhutan thought, holy shit, we're next. And, and up until that point, they had not had any kind of relations with other countries, particularly India, because they felt threatened by <laughs> India as well. But upon seeing what was going on in Tibet, they quickly made um, diplomatic relations with India signed a number of contracts and aligned themselves with India so that if China started to pick on them, they would have you know, a little more weight behind them. They entered the UN in 1971. So at that point, they were recognized as an international presence. Um, 
but between like 59, um, when China went into Tibet, you know, between 59 and 71, they were mostly relying on their relationship with India. And India has a very strong presence there. The military is there. You know, Indian films very much permeate the culture. There's a lot of Indians who live there. So there's quite an extensive relationship with India, both culturally, diplomatically, militarily, economically. Um, but yeah, that's probably the only country that there's you know, a real presence of. Um, and I should maybe add, too, that Bhutan has gotten into trouble with the global community for its treatment of Nepalese or southern Bhutanese. And there are some human rights accusations, and um, it's a very complex situation, but basically southern Bhutanese moved into... Nepalese and Indians moved into southern Bhutan like, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and started, you know, working the land, and and then they ran into trouble because then the Bhutanese later wanted to push them out, and then a lot of the local police um, officers and stuff were treating the southern Bhutanese um, very badly, and the southern Bhutanese started to complain, and and then Amnesty International got involved, and then these refugee camps took place in India and Nepal, um, and now. The mem- some of those camps have been dissolved and the members of those refugee communities are trying to move back into Bhutan and it's a very difficult, complex situation because their land was then appropriated by the government and sold to various people and so they're struggling with how to reintegrate those people and you know, if you talk to Bhutanese they will generally say, oh there's no problem, no problem you know. but when you talk to you know, southern Bhutanese or members in the international community that are working on this issue, it really seems like Bhutan hasn't been as, you know, noble as one would imagine them, given just kind of how they hold themselves in other areas. Um, So, there are a number, like, Bhutan is just filled with temples, like so many shrines and temples and holy places Bhutan, which is central Bhutan, is kind of the the Buddhist gem of the entire Tibetan world, and it has so many holy places. Like one um, Lakong or temple was built in 659. So for basically 15, you know, 100 years, this temple has been in the same spot, um, and and there's similar places all over, and in a I would say like every, like in Boomtong, maybe like every mile, within every mile there's like two or three temples. So you just can bounce all day, you can just walk from temple to temple, and each one, or at least a handful of them, have a deep sense of of religiousosity, um, if that's a word. And you really connect with the kind of the power of that spot and how people have been going to these places for, you know, in some cases over a thousand years and praying and worshipping and, you know, and teaching the Dharma and trying to live the Bodhisattva life and all the stories that are connected with these various places of the saints and sinners um, and sages and mystics that um, have lived there, have taught there, have, you know, performed miracles. Like, you just have this very deep, rich cultural texture um, that is 
so intertwined with the Dharma that you really feel like every story about the culture, in a sense, is a Dharma talk. Um, and, you know, like there's... And Guru Rinpoche is, in many ways, considered more important than the Buddha um, for the Bhutanese. Um, at, at least on par with the Buddha, and in many cases they hold him up as even more important than the Buddha. And then some people will suggest that um, Guru Rinpoche actually was a reincarnation of the Buddha. So that's their way of kind of like getting the best of both worlds. Um, and one of the neat things about the, the Buddhism in Bhutan is the Terma tradition. The Terma tradition, when Guru Rinpoche was running around the various uh, valleys of Bhutan, he had a sense that we are in an a re- age of religious decline. So he decided to hide around, I think it's something like 7,000 scriptures, and to hide them in rocks and trees and the bottom of lakes and in midair in some cases, or what's called the universal mind. And so he hid these scriptures, or sometimes they're a single syllable, sometimes they're a mantra, um, and in some cases they're actual physical objects that are recovered. So he hid these all over Bhutan, and and it's a living tradition, so that even now, turtons, or what are called treasure hunters, will come around, and they have the capacity to incense, either download or decipher um, or extract um, these termas from their you know location, and you know Songyul Rinpoche, who some of you might be familiar with, who's connected with the Rigpa Institute here, he's from Bhutan, and he um, he revealed a terma like ten years ago in Bhutan. So there's a number of Rinpoches and Lamas who have the capacity, who have the realization to, in a sense, connect with this kind of subtle realm and bring forth new scripture. And what's so powerful for me with regards to this tradition is it's what allows the, the Buddhism to continually be responsive to the time. So whereas like with the Christian tradition, you have the Gospels and the various books of the Bible that were written way back in the day, and that's it, you know, said and done. Whereas here in the Truman tradition, you basically have new books of the Bible being revealed you know, like every 10, 15, 20 years. And it's very much in alignment with kind of the Buddhist, um, with Buddhist teaching that of skillful means, that people at various places in their spiritual path are capable of hearing different truths. And so it's, it's that dynamic applied on a cultural level, where as the culture changes and shifts and grows and matures and responds to, you know, its various... Um, Dynamics in relation to other countries and other traditions and other cultures, that new teachings are needed in order to just support the continual maturation of the culture and its people. Clint, I just want to clarify: is this, is this like um, uh, Bhutan mythology, or do people actually come, come across these these old scriptures and rocks yeah. and things like that? My sense is that it's actually happening. Um, I mean, there are probably mythological dimensions and probably some stories that, with time, you know, have mythic elements added to them. But my sense is that these people literally have the capacity to go into an altered state and, in a sense, are getting a direct transmission from Guru Rinpoche. 
Um, so if you you know think of Guru Rinpoche as a highly realized spiritual being who even though he's dead you know but is existing in some spiritual capacity you know in another realm or you know among us these people are tapping into his spiritual being and then he's giving them a teaching and then they communicate that teaching to their community and to the tradition is this a sort of process to authenticate that, that transmission? Yeah, there is. Um, and to be recognized as a turtin or treasure hunter is quite an extensive process. It's very similar to like recognizing the you know reincarnated tukus or the Dalai Lama. Um, but then once an individual is recognized as a turtin, then then they're you know kind of just given the understanding that um, they have this capacity. Um, so once they kind of pass through the fire of you know, getting the credentials, then they can perform their work without always being challenged, um, which maybe in some cases is problematic. But um, but what they say is that the way to authenticate it is if it's in alignment with the Dharma. And, I mean, it's a more extensive process than that, but they compare it to the tradition and, and kind of with a community of adequate, see if it bears its truth out over time. So... It's very fascinating, and there's a whole kind of field of Buddhist hermeneutics that looks at trying to interpret these texts and authenticate them. Oh. Yes? Is this a kind of a monastic education, or is it academic, or what is it? Yeah. Um, yes, for a long time, the education system has just been monastic, but in the late 60s, the king created nationalized education and health care for everyone. Uh, so everyone has access to free education, and now, you know, there's they have inherited the education system from India, which got it from Britain. So there's a lot of ways in which the education system in Bhutan is very much based on, you know, the British approach to schooling, and all the kids have uniforms and. They go to school from the time they're like five until 18. So it's very similar to school here. There's only one college in the country. And as a result, a lot of students go overseas or to India um, to get further education. Um, so... What's the political system there? The political system? It's can they vote and can they vote in and out uh, government or... Yeah, it's very, um, it's a monarchy, so the, the king is, you know, the person who calls all the shots. There isn't voting so much, there's kind of a discrepancy between the king and how he runs the government and kind of his position, and then those who he's appointed to the various ministries and, and positions of power. Once you have that shift from kind of the king to the ministries, then the ministries and the ministers, they appoint various people in their cabinets and so forth. Then you get kind of corruption and power dynamics, and it's very hierarchical. And, you know, the person, like, you know, let's say this is the hierarchy with the minister here. You know, because this person is has to be subservient to the minister, and this person has to be subservient to, you know, the chief of staff or whatever, this person, because they're feeling like they're in a disempowered position in relationship to the minister, they tend to be kind of even more power, 
you know, greedy in relation to the person below them. And so you get this chain effect so that each person throughout the system is kind of taking advantage of the power of those below them because they're being taken advantage by those above them. And it's a very unfortunate dynamic. And, you know, it's kind of frustrating as a Westerner to see that because it, it feels very problematic. And, you know, one of the side effects that I saw of that was, you know, when I was working with the office and encouraging, you know, on this project, you know, coming up with ideas about how we could do this or do that or, you know, this might be a, an appropriate way to engage, you know, the issues, that continually creativity, innovation, motivation is just ironed out of the system. And because no one's held accountable um, beyond just kind of being submissive to the person above them. And you, there's this dynamic where, for example, I had to type up the minutes for our meetings. And so I would say, oh, you know, so Nam said X, Y, and Z. Karma, you know, said this. Um, and, and Dingy Tolly said this. When I turned in the minutes to my supervisor, she said, oh, well, you can't have the names. Can't put the names in the minutes. And I said, well, why not? It's like, these are the people that said these things. Um, and, you know, it might be helpful for folks to know who's saying what. She said, well, no, because it's going to shame people. Because these minutes will go to the ministers. And then if the minister sees that their representative didn't say something or what they did say was dumb, you know, then they're going to get, you know, a bit of a, you know, you know, verbal lashing from the minister. So, so I had to take all the names out. And so there's this dynamic where, you know, people don't want to stick out in any particular way. Um, and it's similar to why I was told not to work as hard as I was because I was sticking out and, and that's a problematic dynamic. So there's a real kind of deep sense of conformity and people just kind of going with the flow and not, you know, rocking the boat too much. Um, so politically, in terms of the political system, there's that in a lot of various ways, um, and a lot of power and corruption, um, in spite of the fact that they're all Buddhist. Um, yes? Well, this leads to the question about any gay life in Bhutan. Yeah. What's the attitude there? Yeah, and I did want to talk about that. I, you know, I asked a lot of people how they felt about gay relationships and its relationship to Buddhism. And what I found was... Uh, well, one, they, they deny that lesbians exist. Um, <laughs> doesn't happen. Don't know what they would be doing, nope. Um, but they, they definitely recognize that gay relationships exist. And I found, I think, kind of three main responses. One, people generally were very open. And like, yeah, that's fine, that's cool, you know. People do lots of different things, so no problem. And I even had a conversation with my boss... Um, we have lunch together every afternoon and we sit out on the lawn with you know the whole office staff and Dr. Ugin would join us from time to time. So he was sitting there and, um, and all of us were there and somehow a conversation came up about you know gay you know relationships and Dr. Ugin was very open and just you know like yeah, no problem. And so it was very interesting because he occupies a, a position of power. And so for him to, in a sense, be that open and, you know, embracing of that kind of, you know, you know, reality, 
in front of like his entire office staff to me was like very touching. It was like, wow, you know, like that's very impressive to see um, in this culture. And so I found similar dynamics elsewhere. I often heard stories about the foreigner who would come and, you know, strike up relations with the young boys. So there was at times some frustration from some Bhutanese of, you know, gay travelers who would come and, you know, in a sense, kind of take advantage was often how they presented it of some of the young men um, in the community. And then the other main response was, yeah, the monks do it all the time. You know, like it's just kind of common knowledge. Um, Though some people denied that the monks did it at all. Um, but there were enough people who said, yeah, you know, like, what else are they going to do? You know, like, like they got to do something. Um, so, and sexuality in general is quite um, free and flowing in Bhutan. And to give a few examples, they have giant red penises hanging from the eaves of the roofs as a way of warding off evil spirits. And then... On many of the houses, as you enter the door, on the left and on the right, is a giant red penis with hairy testicles with semen spurting out of it. Um, And so you have to enter the gate. You know, it's like these two huge phalluses guarding the entrance to the house. And so there's all this emphasis on fertility, on on life, of pleasure. Um, And because it's a Vajrayana tradition, which sees no difference between the sacred and the profane, you find throughout the culture a real embrace of sexuality. Um, One of the pleasures I had was bearing witness to what's called by the locals, I forget the Tibetan name for it, but the local Bhutanese in English refer to it as the um, sacred naked monk dance. And at this temple that's, you know, over a thousand years old, once a year, they have a festival of celebration where they have many mass dances that are based on various scriptures and, you know, kind of moral stories and so forth. Those go on during the day, but at night, they, and this is the only place in Bhutan that does it, they have a bonfire, and then they have various people come out with their mass and perform kind of a purification ritual of the ground, and then they recede into the background and then you have about 12 monks from the ages of 8 to 18 come out naked um, with white um, kind of loincloth material wrapped around their face. Um, one, one boy had something hanging from his penis, like something tied onto his penis. Um, and, and they had a lot of other things kind of going on. And so they dance around the fire naked and kind of it's a choreographed performance. And then... Within the choreographed performance, there are moments of spontaneity where they break out of the kind of structure of the dance and they just kind of frolic in a very Bacchus sort of way and engage in a lot of like kind of homoerotic behavior and, you know, acts of symbolic penetration and, you know, dancing around. And, you know, and it was really quite splendid and like really bizarre to be like, holy cow, like, you know, this is a religious performance, you know, like this is pretty intense. Um... And of course, the young Bhutanese women are all watching, and they're all, they're very shy people, the Bhutanese in general, and so their eyes are like totally huge, and you know, and like and so part of the entertainment was just watching their engagement with the performance, and and then 
Another part of the culture is they, during the dances, they have these clowns who are called ostras, and they wear a red mask, and they have a, a red um, penis phallus, and they run around and they harass people with it in kind of provocative um, uh, ways, and, and then they also use it as a blessing wand, so they'll touch your forehead with it um, and bless you. And then during the performances, the dances, which are considered to be deeply sacred, um, they so these dances are taking place, and the people are doing their various you know movements. And then the the clowns, the ostras, will come up in front of them and mock them and make fun of them and try and distract them. And and it's a way of reminding the Bhutanese that, in spite of the sacredness of this dance, we can't forget. You know our capacity to laugh and and to jest and to play with that which is sacred, um, and and then the ostras they'll run around and they'll tell crude jokes to the audience you know and get quite a you know engagement going, and so so yeah so my exploration of you know the gay reality and how it exists in Bhutan was pretty favorable in the sense that by and large there seemed to be a deep appreciation and understanding that you know that is a viable way of being in the world and you know a lot of people told me oh well the king's uncle he's gay you know um so everyone knew the king's uncle was gay and i thought that was like so perfect it's just like we all have a gay uncle you know it's like this kind of stereotype and here in bhutan you know like the king's uncle of course you know it only makes sense um so there was and there was always the capacity to bring it up and talk about it, and there wasn't kind of people shutting down around it. So even if they kind of had a more critical like, oh, I don't think it's right, it wasn't coming from the kind of space that that attitude usually comes from here, um, in my experience. So, so yeah, thank you for asking. Okay, well, on that note, we have to finish now. Oh, great! Wow, <laughs> time flies. Mm. Well, I'll have to bring it back to a second. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.